Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The Super Bowl is right around the corner. If you are looking to place a bet on any of the sports going on, betonline.ag is the best and only place to lock it in. Uh, Like I said before, like I said a week ago, uh, Brooklyn Nets plus 275, and they're looking good. Might as well jump on that to win the championship, plus 275, uh, right behind the Lakers as favorites. So from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Support for our pod is also brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Uh, this is a, it's, it's actually a very good product. I, I'm very happy with it. Uh, no longer do you have to worry about nicks and cuts in the absolute wrong place. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BROS, B-R-O-S, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code BROS, B-R-O-S. everybody. Welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports. When you hear this, uh, it's a very happy day. It's inauguration day. And uh, I know that, you know, one day does not necessarily, you know, mean it's magic, you know. But however, you know, it it does mean that there is one disappearing act that that we can all look forward to, you know. And, uh, you know, people talk all that shit they want. You know, well, yeah, He'll still be a, a whatever. Yeah, but he won't have control. He won't have he won't have the fucking hands on the bells and whistle. <laughs> you know, How about it, that? Makes, How about it that? makes a big difference. You yeah, know, you're right. You, know, you can you're right. like, like, like you can be like a head coach, uh, and you know, but once you're the ex head coach, you're the ex head coach. So right. you can't That's be it. hiring motherfuckers and <laughs> <laughs> you know. So anyway, but listen, uh, I'm here in an undisclosed location in Midtown Manhattan. And I want to flip it to my, my good friend and co-host, the great Jamal Murphy. Murph, what's up? What's up, Bill? I'm, uh, I'm out here in, in Brooklyn trying to hold it down. Like you said, I'm waiting for that disappearing act tomorrow. You know, I'm not doing cartwheels, but it's the first step. So we'll right. see how that goes. Uh, we have a special guest today. Um, as you might have heard already, we have a special guest today who's out there uh, in the D.C. area right now. Um, so that's interesting in and of itself. But our guest today is Adisa Bakari. Uh, NFL agent, principal, founder, and CEO of the Sports and Entertainment Group uh, with clients that include Le'Veon Bell, Stefan Diggs, Tyrod Taylor, Robert Griffin III. Uh, there's more I could go on and on. He was the 20, 2013 Washington Magazine top lawyer. So he's not just a sports agent. He's, he's a, a true attorney in the game. Uh, so we'd like to 
Welcome, Adisa Bukhari. Thanks for joining us. Right. Oh man, thanks, thanks for having, thanks for having. This is uh, certainly a long time coming. I've been watching Bill for years. I'll tell you, Bill, and this, and, and please take this as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> on ESPN, all the years on ESPN, and what's the, the little Sunday afternoon? Oh, the uh, sports reporters. Sports reporter, very even killed, mild manner, very poignant and cogent arguments you would make. But when I opened that book, Forty Million Dollar Slaves, boy, you went straight into Malcolm mode. You weren't pulling punches at all. <laughs> I said, "Listen, I said, who is this guy writing this book? He's telling the whole truth." But no, it's it's certainly a pleasure to be to be on your show. Um, that book uh, has certainly been very impactful to our business. Um, it was published when, Bill. It uh, came out in 2006 and 2007 as a paperback. Okay, so starting in 2007's draft class of mine, and this is, you know, I've been doing this roughly 21 years, starting in 2007, every rookie we sign gets a copy of your book. Oh, so wow. that, big, that big purchase every year around this time, that's us <laughs> from Amazon, <laughs> buying in bulk. Thank, thank but, you, my uh, brother. <laughs> oh, you are very welcome. You are very welcome. Uh, it's, we, we instill in our clients, it's, it's imperative. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, these guys who, who transition from college or in some cases high school directly to professional sports, it's a dream come true for them. We, we, we are excited for the transition for themselves and their families. But we always instill it's much more than scoring touchdowns and dunking basketballs or whatever sport you play. It is imperative that we understand and examine how we got here. Our, our history is a very unique history in this country, one that should consistently and constantly be studied and certainly should not be taken for granted. Uh, your book does that from cover to cover. I'd be remiss if I didn't say too how graphic a writer you are. <laughs> I played at Delaware State, so in that early oh, chapter when you're describing- you played at Delaware State. I went up a Hornet, proud Hornet. So when you're describing the old games between Morgan and Grambling at Yankee Stadium, I'm with you, I'm right there with you. I'm like, man, I wish I played those. That sounds like everything. <laughs> of course, those days were pre-segregation days and we, right. we only had the opportunity to play at HBCUs. But it was, I couldn't help but feel a bit of nostalgia, uh, just the way you painted that picture of that long history of black college football. And uh, so again, we appreciate you for, the, for that seminal work. That work is gonna transcend certainly uh, generations. It's certainly gonna stand the test of time. And, uh, and we appreciate you for that. Hey man, Adisa, thank you so much for that. Man, it's very, uh, you know, when you're doing the work, as you know, you really involved doing the work. You're not thinking right. about anything, you're just doing the work. And then sure. as time goes on and people say, you know, you have impact on people's lives, then, oh, wow, okay. Then you realize that's kind of what your role is as a, as a, as a human being, as a, as a black man, that's kind of a role. And I remember Jackie Robinson said that something, life is no, of no matter unless it, except how you help somebody else. I mean, I'm screwing it up. No, but, but that's it. I mean, what you're talking about, what you're talking about is legacy. Yeah. And we challenge our players all the time. I mean, whether you're a Stefan Diggs, a Maurice Jones-Drew, Matt Forte, Le'Veon, whomever, all elite-level athletes, we are not going to be defined 
by what we accomplished in our 20s. Right. When your right. grandchildren, when your grandchildren are telling your story, if all they can talk about it are your athletic exploits, you failed. I don't care how many gold jackets and, and, and busts you may don on your trophy case. At the end of the day, the story should be a, how about, a, about how good of a father, husband, community leader, maybe business leader you were, civic leader you were, and a long time ago, Bill, you may have been a Hall of Fame football player. That's right. how the story should read. And, and so we, we instill that in our clients from day one. Your book helps them appreciate that because we grill our players on those buttons, so they're reading that book. And for some time, you know, it may be the first book that a player is even given, uh, right? A client, a person, a young man is even given. And certainly for many of our clients, it's the first time they've read a piece cover to cover. But they, they understand the role that they play as individuals. They quite frankly understand the history into which they're entering, given the legacy left by those that have come before and, that, and thus can't take it for granted. It's more than just touchdowns and all that other stuff we celebrate on Sundays and all these other days this game is playing on. What will you do with that celebrity? And so your book speaks to that. Your book speaks to <laughs> the ever-changing complexion and status of sports. One of the other area books, chapters in your book that struck me and I was completely ignorant of it was the history of cycling and, 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 and jockey and horseback riding, you know, whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. I'm, that was our sport. Yeah, right. yeah jockey, yeah. Now, that, now, much of that was a product of the slave environment at the time, right? But you don't see that today. So the idea that we, that we <laughs> might be, you know, the torchbearers or, or the, the, you know, the forefront of football or basketball. I mean, there was a time where we were pretty, you know, had a significant presence. Black people did in, in Major League Baseball. Right. And, and we've seen kind of that declining. So it, may, it helps the young player understand that this is more than just the game. This is really, in, in many levels, more than the business of the sport. That it, it, it speaks to a very long and very uh, impactful history of, of uh, uh, Black people in America and the role that we play in continuing to a shape to shape America. Yeah. Well, man, there's so much to unpack here, man, I, and I'm going to belabor the book. But number one, Delaware State. I didn't realize that you were an HBCU guy. <laughs> All Delaware day long, State. brother. They, uh, All day brother, long. They had a guy, when I was there, thinking there's Pedro Swan okay. uh, back in the day. I mean, yeah, we, mm -hmm. we went to Delaware, and uh, this may have been my, uh, let's see, I started, uh, I started my second year. Okay. And it, it was one of the worst years I've ever had in my life. I mean, <laughs> ever, ever. I was playing right cornerback, and it seemed like I got beat every single week. And I remember Brutus, right. Coach Brutus, who was like this legendary guy. He played back in Morgan in the, you know, in the golden era. Sure, And he said, sure. boy, you gave up more touchdowns in one year than we gave up in five decades or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> but that's how, you know. The old black man, he'd just be like, yes, you know, yes, you gave up more touchdown boy and what, you know. But <laughs> we, we, went in, I, I, we went into Delaware State, and that was sort of one of the, like, the bright spots of an otherwise dismal year, you know. Oh, don't, you, don't do that to me, man. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> no, but, but, shots see, shots my, fired. Shots my fired. experience was a little different from yours, Bill. You, you, you ended up emerging as one of the key players on your squad. I recognized very early on, and by early, I mean that first week of camp that I was not the man. 
and I would not be playing beyond college. <laughs> and so I realized even at the 1AA level that I was not as good as I thought I was. And it was at that point that I said, okay, I better make sure my academics will, be, uh, will allow me to do what I want to do. But I will say it was my time at Dell State um, and my interaction with professors at Dell State to help me to appreciate how American sports and the representation of American athletes could be utilized to transform African-American communities. And so when I'm deciding what I will be when I grow up, as it were, a couple things I concluded. Bill, one, never going to be poor again. Yeah, Yeah, had that experience growing up, wasn't fun. Uh, Two, and this is largely because of Delaware State, um, I had come to accept what I believe to be my purpose in life, and that's to improve the lives of black people, whatever they may be. And so whatever I did for a living had to fulfill that perceived purpose. And it was at Dell State where I said, okay, I'm not going to fulfill my childhood dream of playing on Sundays, but the impact I can have on my community by representing these players and guiding and counseling and mentoring them um, will will largely have a a greater impact uh, on our community than just out there on the field on Sunday. So, yeah, Dell State, man, HBCUs all day. Yeah, yeah. I'd like for you to – I run this uh, fellowship. Uh, you know, I write for the undefeated now. Yep. yep. And uh, we, there's a fellowship that they created in my name called the Roden Fellows. Okay. And it's really been one of the most gratifying things of my life. We just named our fourth class. And these are six uh, uh, journalism students from uh, six HBCUs. Okay. And each year we choose six. Uh, and they're on a full, they're on a paid fellowship for a year. And for that year, they're like young paid journalists. They mm. they uh, they do content. They write. They do everything that I do at another right. level for ESPN. Oh, sure. Yeah, for ESPN. Yeah, and uh, that's awesome, man. It's yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And uh, I mean, you know, you know the feeling, uh, Adisa. You know when, uh, you know, like when you see one of your players maybe retired or how you see them mature. You know, yeah. and go from where they were when they were yeah. 21 and you see what they're like when they're 30. Yeah. And there's a sense that you played a direct role in that. And That's I, it, I, Bill. Yeah. That's, and, that, and that's see, everything. I mean, we yeah. talk about, I talk about that very point in our meetings. Um, when we're interviewing, when we're prospecting, right? When we're trying to convince a young man and his family to entrust us with their professional career, the thing that that fills our heart the most is not, you know, negotiating seminal watershed deals, which we do on a regular basis. And that's the way we keep the lights on. Obviously we want to continue doing that, but to watch a 20 year old Maurice Jones drew whose sole focus is playing football to then see him evolve into a conscientious businessman by the time he's 25, such that, Early in his career, I got to hold his hand and guide him through every meeting, which is my job. But by the time he's in his mid-20s, he can handle himself on any street corner in America and any boardroom in America without my direct presence. To watch a a young man like Antoine Bethay from Howard University to come into this league already mature beyond his years 
but to evolve into the consummate businessman that he is and a Hall of Fame safety to boot. That is, I mean, again, man, for us, it's a ministry on a lot of levels, and it's, it's that very thing to see these young men mature into full, full men, men with a sense of purpose beyond their sport, and to know that you, you had a hand in shaping that personality and, and that growth. Yeah, it, it certainly fills the heart. Jamal, you go, God. We could have this conversation. I just want to say I want to invite you. We do a a weekly, a uh, 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 bi-week, no, every other week podcast. Okay. Uh, the, the, the fellows do a podcast, mm-hmm. and would love to have you on. Oh, I'd love uh, to be on. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I kind of stay out of. It. I let them. Yeah. That's all part of the whole experience. But um, mm-hmm. they they know you, and they certainly know when you say Le'Veon Bell. Oh man. Oh man! Right, right, right. No, I get uh, that. I get that. Dig, no, tell, them, tell them to reach out, man. I love to be on. We, I mean, you know what it is. The young people, man. That's our tomorrow. Without cultivating right. that, we're done. So, absolutely, right. all day long. Cool. Let me let me ask you, Adisa. I'll I'll start by like, how how did you do it? Um, because you know, a lot of people have dreams of that. You know, in terms of, oh, you know, I'll become an agent and I'll do it the right way and I'll teach. I'll teach, uh, you know, lesson, you know, I'll, I'll give real life lessons to, 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 uh, to young men, but then right. when, when they try to do it, you know, it's, it's kind of, they have to kind of go against the grain because they've been conditioned to go this other route where it's just right. about the money and it's just, you know, with the white agent or whatever. So I know it's right. not an easy thing. So how, how were you able to, to do this? Look, and, and this is obviously, we don't have a lot of time. This is an interesting story. So, much of it, again, I go back to Dell State, man. I, I, I came into my manhood in Dover, Delaware. And those professors, a handful of those professors, one is the head of the, the media communications department at Morgan now, coincidentally, and a couple others at Dell. They helped shape my thinking. They challenged me intellectually to kind of turn some pages and dig deeper. And so in doing my studies, during my studies at Dell State, um, I came to certain uncompromising principles about what my adult life would be about what my you know what my professional life would be i graduated i went to the university of wisconsin law school graduated i did well in law school well enough to get a you big know firm. did you know linda green linda professor i was about to say linda professor green is my girl yes absolutely yeah, I mean, professor we, green. We, we, yeah we've been friends man since like 1987. oh my goodness yeah i yeah. had her class i had a couple of her classes and then, you know, she would always throw dinner parties for the black law students and, and other students as well. But, yeah, Professor Green, she's oh, wow. a sharp sister for sure. Wow. And so um, I, I did well enough in law school to get a big firm job. I was uh, very fortuitously placed in the executive compensation practice um, at the firm when I first started and where I was negotiating compensation arrangements, both equity and cash-based compensation arrangements for traditional corporate 100 executives. and. And, and while I was lamenting the fact that this was not my intended purpose, I could not, because I'm not working for my community yet. Right. Um, I was honing skills as a negotiator and certainly understanding at the core of what we do is negotiate labor agreements, most notably a player contract or an employment agreement, i.e. the player contract. And so after three years of the firm and my wife, whom I met my freshman year in college, um, she and I, you know, just had our third child. We were living, mm-hmm. if you know anything about D.C., we were living in northwest D.C., off the, what's referred to as the Gold Coast, a prominent black community, a historic black community in D.C. Um, my wife had planned 
a birthday celebration. She and my secretary had planned a birthday celebration and I was finishing up this, it was a big company, publicly traded. They had a proxy uh, meeting and I was charged with writing or revising this equity-based plan. And so I'm getting dressed, I'm finishing that and I'm gonna head out downstairs. My wife had the limo and all this stuff there tomorrow. So I'm like, okay, cool. I was a little nervous because my wife's from Grand Rapids, Michigan and they're not really high on fashion. So she said, <laughs> the wardrobe, and the wardrobe she sent me, I would have never picked out, but it was my wife, she's my birthday. So I'm putting on these squares, pants, no, I'm joking. So at any minute, I'm like, I go downstairs and uh, you know, and then I get paged by the partner for whom I'm working. And uh, he, I go up to the office real quick, or go up to his office. He said, hey, Anissa, you were supposed to do X, Y, and Z to the stock plan. And I said, well, I thought I was making this in lieu of what they were already getting in the way of equity compensation. No, it's supposed to be in addition to. Now, mind you, this, these are executives who were managing a, a fledgling company, a company that was going, they, they were preparing to go into meetings with their stockholders to, 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 to let them know how poorly the company was performing while lamenting that I didn't add to their bottom, their individual pockets by and giving them both options and restricted stock, not to get too detailed. So in any event, I lean over and make the necessary changes to the document and I head down to my wife and I get in the car and I'm like, this can't be why I'm here. On Monday, I'm resigning. Monday, I resigned. Monday, I said, look, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm here my two weeks. We put a contract on a house bill in Southeast DC, different community, very good community, but price points are different in terms of housing. And I was ready to go. Um, I made enough of an impression at the firm at the time where they said, look, don't leave. Um, we want you to see if you can develop the practice here. Mm. Uh, and that first year in, in doing so, I signed nine NFL players. I literally went to Alabama. This is a time 20 years ago where in December there were multiple uh, you know, college all-star games being played for prospective NFL players. Now we just have the Senior Bowl, East West Shrine, the PA game. But it was blue-gray game. It was gridiron class. It was a bunch of games. And so I literally took a Yolanda Adams CD oh, wow. <laughs> and my personal credit card and went down there with this hope and, and passion to, to work for these young men to help them see something bigger than the sport. And uh, walked away with nine clients that first year, and the rest is uh, history. So, Jamal, to your question, that's how I started. I would not advise that. Don't quit your job, folks who <laughs> might be listening. Uh, right. But – I do believe that there are two types of people on the planet. They're task-oriented people, and this is not to slight anybody. This is not a judgment. This is just a matter-of-fact statement. Uh, a matter-of-fact statement, in my opinion, haha. <laughs> but a matter-of-fact statement. They're, they're people who are task-oriented, i.e., you give them a task to do, they'll do a good job no matter what the task is. That's just mm -hmm. how they're programmed, right? But then there are people who are subject matter-oriented. I'm of that latter group. For you to get 100% out of me, I need to believe in what I'm doing. So while I was doing enough to sustain employment as a young lawyer in a big firm, I was not at all passionate about the thing I was doing. And because I lacked that passion going to work every day, it started to affect me emotionally. I had to be doing every day, not on the weekends, not after hours in a volunteer thing. I had to be doing all day, every day, what I believed to be my life's purpose. And so. With that in mind, I had the conversation with my wife about starting over again financially. And she had my back as she always has. And, um, and then we made that decision. But the firm, so I guess, saw enough of me that they wanted to kind of roll the dice on me, and they did. So we built the practice at the, at the firm for about 14 years. Um, we transitioned to another firm for a couple years. And then, of course, we went independent. 
and be, and have been independent ever since. Mm. That's great, man. That's that's a great story. Uh, there's so much again to unpack, man. Um, a couple things, man. The, the year started off. We at the undefeated. We were doing this whole thing about the year of the black quarterback. Mm. And last year it, it worked and it turned out perfectly with mm -hmm. Mahomes. Lamar had the off the chart year. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to. Uh, I was down in uh, San Diego. I wanted to talk to Tyrod, you know, because mm -hmm. he's always been a very compelling figure to me. You yeah, know, from the time he was in Cleveland and mm -hmm. Buffalo. Buffalo. I was just seemed yeah. to be a, a break away, just, just, uh, just a little, you know. And then I, I was excited that he was in uh, with the Chargers, with a brother as a coach, and all that. And then, I mean, some shit that just happened, like I fucking mystery thing, like the. The, the I, I, to me, I still don't think that's kind of wait. Whoa, whoa, what? The, the, the guy <laughs> gets the trainer or the doctor shoots him up with something, and then like basically sends him to the hospital. And then this other this white guy who was a good. I mean, it was great. Obviously, I mean, clearly turned out to be a good player. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's like okay, but now so just thoughts about that. I mean. Your yeah. thoughts about that? Your thoughts about how I mean, how's Tyrod doing? And yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Ty, Tyrod. Look, man. To say he's mature beyond his years would be a huge understatement. Ty is one of the most emotionally balanced, even killed young men that I've ever been around. That is a product of Rodney and Trina Taylor, his parents. Uh, never get too high about the highs or too low. Um, Ty has had a very interesting journey. When I first met he and his family, in fact, ESPN was doing a documentary on Ty. It was the, they did a year of the quarterbacks. It was Tyrod. Um, uh, how can I forget? New England Patriots by way of Carolina. Cam. Cam. Oh, Cam. Cam. And then there was a quarterback who now escapes me, but he was a first-round draft pick. He was uh, out of um, – I want to say University of Washington that year. Same draft class. He only, he only lasted three years. He fizzled. He was a top ten pick, though. I can't the name escapes me. So they featured those three backs, those three quarterbacks. And Tyrod was looked at at the time when I'm recruiting the family. They followed us through the whole recruitment process. I'm telling them that, look, NFL teams don't see you as a quarterback. You have really high draftable grades as a, quote, athlete or if you were to switch positions to receiver or something like that. And Ty's position was, look, I've been a quarterback since I'm five years old. That's all I know. And so it doesn't matter where I get drafted. I play quarterback. That's how I'm programmed. He goes to get drafted in, a, in the sixth round. Ozzie Newsom calls immediately to say, man, I really didn't realize how good of a passer he was. Remind you, this is 2011, Bill Jamal. And in 2011, there was no OTAs. There was no spring. This was the year of the lockout. The lockout ends. These rookies go straight to training camp. And Tyrod earned that second job in Baltimore. And, again, that's a job where you better be ready to play, right, second quarterback. Uh, during those first four years, Flacco doesn't catch a cold, let alone get hurt. <laughs> and so uh, they came to Tyrod a couple times and say, hey, would you consider playing receiver? And, I'm, and so we pulled Ty aside and said, you know the history. As soon as you decide to play something else, you can give up that quarterback job, bro. Right. So if you're a quarterback, you better stick to your guns. When we transitioned to Buffalo, the goal was just to go to a place where we could really compete for a starting job and not be competing against a contract. So we go to Buffalo on a league minimum. And then Kubiak, Gary Kubiak becomes the OC in Denver, and they want Tyrod because he left Baltimore. He knew what Tyrod was. He wanted Tyrod to go to Denver, back up Peyton for idea for a year, 
And Bataz said, look, I don't want to back up anybody. I want, if you're not going to let me compete, I'm not going. So we go to Buffalo. Uh, he wins the starting job. Um, the deal that I did had a void in it that said if he were to win the starting job, what was a three-year deal would reduce to a two-year deal, making Tyrod a lame-duck player going into second year. Um, and what quarterback is out there on a the one-year deal? Not many. And so if you want to see some of that magic that Ty has shown, you got to give us a long-term deal. So after one year, you know, Tyrod got a significant contract. So I say all that history to say, on the one hand, my heart bleeds for Tyrod because, like you said, he's always a breakaway or it seems like some, some, some real conspiratorial right. stuff is happening behind the scenes at times. <laughs> but on the other hand, and probably the most important hand on many levels, Ty only plays because he wants to play. Ty doesn't <laughs> have to play. Right. Ty doesn't have to work ever again. Mm. So mission accomplished on that front, financial right. security. But as long as Tyrod is a very special player, um, still in the right circumstance, I think he can win a lot of games for a lot of teams, be one of the top players at his position. Um, but more than just a player, and it's interesting because when he goes to Baltimore as a rookie, right, you look up Ed Reed sitting by his, off, by his locker. Uh, um, uh, Ray Lewis is huddled up by this rookie's locker, right? If folks go back and the test of time when Tyrod was playing in preseason, they were interviewing Ray Lewis on the sideline. ESPN was. He stops and said, one second, because I got to see this kid play because he's that exciting <laughs> to play. And coincidentally, in that game, he brings them back from behind and they win the playoff game and Ray Lewis starts singing his praises on the sideline. Tyrod has this natural aura about him, this natural sense of confidence and leadership ability where it's not uh, – fabric it's not forced it's not contrived he's just he's just a natural born leader that people gravitate to and good for every building and then like we challenge all of our players but i didn't have to give this message to, to tyrod he works like he's the most unathletic person in the building bill he works like he's the sorriest ass he the first in i mean he's posting instagram now he in the gym mm. i'm like well i'll take a vacation do something <laughs> please but he's programmed to just all the time to pursue excellence, to pursue that elite level thing. And that's his life. So he's a great young man. The stuff that happened this year, again, you couldn't script it in a movie or maybe it becomes scripted one day in the Tyrod Taylor movie. Yeah. But uh, it, it's just crazy. Um, it's still figuring itself out as it were. Um, but he took it on the chin. Heartbroken, yes. But he's, his strong faith in his God um, and and the, the, the guidance that his mother and father continue to give him and have instilled in him is what I think anchors him to maneuver sometimes these choppy waters, man, that the NFL can be. And so, no, nah, he's a special dude. He's more than a client to me. He's family to me. I'm, I'm just privileged and honored to be able to say that. Mm. Mm. Sunday, man. Sunday you got uh, uh, two guys, man. I mean, uh, at, at the very least two guys. You got uh, Le'Veon with Kansas City. Yeah, and you got uh, Stefan with Buffalo. Yeah, uh, we got a couple other clients. We got question. a couple other clients on both teams, but those are the two stars for sure. Well, who else you have? Well, we have a, a young linebacker uh, going in his third year in Kansas City, Dorian O'Daniel, uh, a DC area kid by way of Clemson, third round pick for Kansas City, um, and uh, we got a young receiver on the on the on the Bills practice squad as well. Um, I root for my players every week. Wins and losses ain't my concern, man. That's the concern of managers and coaches. Uh, every now and then you root for a coach, you root for a GM because they're just good people. And this may be one of those occasions, I'm not going to say which of those teams <laughs> I'm rooting for, 
But the sports and entertainment group wins when our clients do well. And I, it wouldn't be a bad bet to place on both Le'Veon and Stefan doing well. So I'm, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to see them uh, this weekend for sure. We talked a little bit just now about uh, black quarterbacks. That, that landscape seems to be changing. You know, we've kind of forced our way in there. But when you look at the coaches and the GMs, that's the big issue right now. Um, you know, what, what's your feeling on, on where the NFL is on, you know, as, as far as race is concerned with, with coaches and yeah. GMs? No, I mean, it's always interesting when people try to talk about the NFL with somehow as if it's exempt and accepted from every other aspect of our society. People bring their biases to work every day. People bring their preconceived notions to work every day, whether you work in politics, education, economics, or in sports, right? People bring their natural affinity to work every day. And so what we see is that continuing in, uh, in professional sports, most notably the NFL, and I think it's only going to change when players like the quarterback in Houston, Watson, uh, recognize the influence and leverage they have and exert it because it's temporary. That leverage, that influence you have is temporary. It will not last. And if you don't use it while you got it, then it's wasted. So I think, and I don't know, I don't represent Deshaun Watson. I don't know what his mentality was, but I got to believe that. The offense, if that's the right word to describe it, was the fact that you wouldn't even interview perceiving, you know, what seemingly are qualified black coaches. Right. Wouldn't even interview them. And only when I made a fuss, <laughs> you decided in, in, in possibly some perfunctory way to offer these interviews. So look, it's not my business. I don't know the inner workings of what happened or what is happening in Houston. Um, but if it's something along the lines of that, then kudos to the player. Uh, these players have to understand that while the NFL waits on no one, right? I always tell my clients, Brett Favre got cut. The NFL wait, they turned the page, certainly prematurely, but they turned the page on one of the greatest players, if not the greatest player to ever live in Tom Brady and see how that worked out for New England. Uh, the NFL waits on no one. But while that sun is shining brightly on your time, you should use it. See, and this dovetails with some of the, and that debate, Jamal, that was going on a couple weeks ago on Twitter. And I'm not really an active Twitter person. I heard about it through my office. Right. But about black agents uh, feeling unfulfilled, for lack of a better word, because white clients don't give them the same ear that, I guess, black prospective players give. Right. Look. They're too, and again, this is not this is a, a business philosophy, right? And it's a personal one's personal philosophy. I'm never going to tell someone else how to run their business. I'm certainly not going to suggest how you live your life. That's that's on you, right? Yeah, it's my opinion. I got them all day long, but I'm not going to force it on anybody, right? I like to think that I am a we used to call it conscious, right? So to, or conscientious. Today's generation refers to it as woke, right? Mm -hmm. I can't make a move without asking the question, how this moves, how does this move benefit my community and thus humanity? So we've been running a very successful agency for a very long time. Certainly profitability is chief among our concerns, but it's not solely profitability. It's profitability married with the desire to do good in our community. 
to help these young men. I mean, we're talking about the transference of billions of dollars in just football. In the last CBA from 2011 to 2020, over $10 billion, I'm sorry, scratch that, over $50 billion, 50B as in boy, $50 billion transferred from owners to players. So let's use Bill's math early on. 70% is black. $35 billion went from 32 owners to African-American hands over a 10-year period. We should see so much growth, at least with financial growth, at least with their individual families, but certainly in their larger communities. Look, we could debate until the sky turns yellow about how American society has relegated us to the margins, how with the exception of, of sports and entertainment, we are not allowed to fulfill the fullness of our capability. That is a debate that we should continue to wage, that if you simply level the playing field, you'll see us rise in all walks of life. But while they let us do our thing in sports and entertainment, so to speak, we should work to own it. Right, right. Stop, period, per, as my daughters would say, per. We should own it. And so unless we're taking that wealth and replicating it and using it responsibly, again, at the end of the day, you just have stories. So we encourage our players, look, the NFL doesn't wait on anybody, but while you have some leverage, use that leverage. Use it intelligently, use it strategically, but use it. We know, I mean, look, Colin Kaepernick decided to do that to his professional peril. But Bill, you've been around long enough. You know how it works. In 30 years, they're going to be like, he was the best thing in the world. He was Jesus again. Right. And all the people who shun him are going to be on, on another network or somebody's network talking about how noble and heroic he was. But those right. will be the same, very same voices who were castigating him when he took the stand. It's no difference. It's crazy. You would think that Dr. Martin Luther King, the week of his birthday celebration, had no detractors. I can't find a single person exactly. publicly saying <laughs> right. Everybody Dr. King marched for was wrong. But right. I do when I watch these documentaries or read these books behind me, all I read about is people who were coming for his neck. And we know they eventually succeeded. But right. when we talk about Dr. King today, everybody loved Dr. King today. Right. So we know in 30 years, Colin Kaepernick will be exalted as a hero, he lost 10 million, tens of millions of dollars taking a very strong stance. Le'Veon took a stance. Right. Not my recommendation. Just to be clear, we only inform our guys, teach our guys about the business of the NFL. We never tell them to go left or go right, not our careers. But we do it to educate our players on the idea, the reality that NFL contracts are unilaterally written. Unilaterally written to the benefit of the owner, meaning if they don't like you, they can cut you, even though you got more years on the contract. The only leverage you have, the only leverage you have is to not show up. The only leverage you have is to be an elite level player to make you so indispensable that you might make them reconsider their hard stance on something. Le'Veon decided that you weren't going to put me in a box and tell me I'm not worth what I, what I know I am vis-a-vis -vis my production. I can measure my production against every other player to have ever played. I mean, these be like publicly traded companies. We can measure all this stuff against other folks, right? And there was nobody doing it like he was doing it at the time, but the Steelers had a way of doing business that they don't guarantee money outside of the signing bonus. So we're not gonna give you a traditional NFL contract unless your name is Ben Roethlisberger. He's the only one on the team that has a traditional NFL contract. So Le'Veon said, well, look, I'm not playing. 
I said, bro, that's worse than what Colin Kaepernick is doing. You are thumbing your nose at the economic institution of the NFL and could possibly influence other players to lose, use their leverage in the same way. If you think they're coming for Colin's neck, which they, they go, Colin protested for shining a light on social injustice. But yeah, it may, may, may hurt my marketing dollars, but okay, sure. You're saying the way y'all do business with these players is upside down and we need more bilateral relationship, more right. partner relationship vis-a-vis -vis player and owner. And the owner's like, oh, hell no, we're not doing that. I said, so be mindful if you take this stance, you're going to really be, you know, put on a list. And that turned out to be the case because there was only one team that would deal with us, and that was the Jets coming back from it, a, a talent as, 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 uh, as high as Le'Veon. So all things being equal, look, what, whatever the stance was, is in Houston, I applaud the young man for exercising whatever leverage he believes he has um, and doing it for a very principled reason. Um, whatever those reasons might be, I might be completely missing the mark bill on why he's doing it. There could be some about him not liking the people in the building. But the perception is there's a level of dissatisfaction about giving folks a fair shot as vis-a-vis exactly. -vis the head coach. And if that is the reason, then kudos to Deshaun Watson for, for taking that stance and uh, for other players who have done the same. And again, for him to say, similar to Layton, I take it to another level, because he's a quarterback, to yep. say, well, you know, uh, I ain't just going to play. I won't play for you anymore. And yeah. I was listening to, I listen to a lot of NFL radio, and it's just remarkable. It's remarkable, and, and this gets into our business, the media, and how they've been really ignoring this whole thing. They'll mention it, but nobody will go in depth. Well, what's the... What's behind this? Now, hmm. one, except for Solomon Wilcox, hmm. you know, who's- Now, here's the funny thing, Bill. Every GM I talk to, hmm. I ain't talking about Deshaun Watson. I'm talking about my clients. Right. But when I'm talking to GMs who are in a, a need for a quarterback, they bring this topic up. Because they like a hmm. dude trying to get out of there. I want him, because I know what right. he is as a player. And to a, to a man, every GM I talk to has a level of understanding and empathy for Deshaun. Mm. Right. And I'm going right. to stop pitching because I don't work for Deshaun, so I'm going to stop making this case. But <laughs> folks, yeah. my point is, Bill, folks behind the curtain know exactly what's going on. Right. right. Which is why right. they freed that boy up. He get a job quicker than you could say job. And they know. And that, and that to me, you're right. Young kid. I mean, he's, I mean, he's like, what, 24? Something 25? like that. Yeah. So it's yeah. not like, it's not even like Kaepernick. Yep. You know, I mean, it's like here you got a guy who everybody is saying this guy's a franchise guy. It to me, it's like a snapshot. If you take 40 million dollars slaves or whatever, and, and one of the things I was going to ask you would be one of the, you know, people say, well, what about the sequel and all that? And I said, well, I don't know about the sequel, but I have mm -hmm. been asking people, if you were going to write another chapter or a new what would be the first chapter of the sequel? Okay. Because back then it was Jordan. Well, Jordan is now. It, it, you know, certain thing. The history is history, right? Oh, I got the a history. chapter. I got a couple chapters you should focus on. Because mm -hmm. truthfully, if we really, I mean, not to interrupt you, Bill, but you see these young players taking a stand, right? They took a stand for social justice. We see players like, like Le'Veon and maybe even Deshaun taking a stand for uh, some economic balance and some opportunity, you know, equal opportunity and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> It's still imperative that, look, this thing don't work with, with, unless the economics work. Uh, so when, with, just to go back to Jamal's point, to bring it home, 
So the debate that was being had about why white clients, yada, yada, not giving me a fair shot. Look, I've represented white clients. We had a white client, a couple white clients uh, in our, our draft. That's fine. You know, never been an issue for me. Um, but it's also not an objective for me, right? I don't say, oh, my God, I'm qualified. I'm validated if white people let me represent. No, that's not my mental process. Right. One, the economics suggests that that's a little off the mark because <laughs> – 70 plus percent of the league is black. If you only represented cornerbacks for your entire career, you represented the top corners in the league, you would be a pretty damn successful agent. If you only represented running backs or receivers, you're going to be, I mean, look, it's a 70 plus percent black league. So why are you focusing on a handful of left tackles and guards and centers and quarterbacks that, that validates your existence? So there's some psychology and history associated with the notion that I'm only successful if white people let me work for them. That's, that's, just, that's just reality. Again, our history as black people in this country is unique, and the notion of needing white validation, regardless of one's vocation, is not a new thing. Uh -huh. It's not a new thing. We don't need that. I know my worth. My clients know their worth. More importantly, we know what we're trying to do beyond touchdowns and, 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 and tackles. And we know it, what we're trying to do vis-a-vis -vis the community. And in fact, you deal with that. You deal with that, that psychology on the other end, I'm sure, when you deal with players who some players and their parents may feel they need that validation right. from white agents, man. et cetera. Right. Man, if I told you enough of stories, I'm sitting in an interview, I'm, a, I'm 30 minutes an hour in as to why you shouldn't tr trust your son's career with me. and <laughs> Mama lean over and say, so you a lawyer? Yes, ma'am. I graduated <laughs> University of Wisconsin. So you went to law school? <laughs> I'm like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and so, again, our history is, and I'm in there, look, my partner now, we always joke, we, we Easter Sunday like a mug, man. We got the shiny this, woo, woo. I leave, I see little Joey walking in like he just got finished cutting the grass, ruffled slacks, and, and all. I'm like, God damn, y'all can sit. And then, and this is not to be E because I'm not a big pound chest guy, right? I'm, I'm, you're going to very hit, rarely hear me talk about myself. But many of the jokers I'm competing against <laughs> couldn't have got a job in the mailroom of the law firms where I started my career. Mm -hmm. Their resumes don't hold, not even a little bit. But yep. again, our history is unique. We were ingrained for 300 plus years. Look, you got 300 plus years of mental subjugation, right, of, of chattel slavery. Then you have another several years, close to 100 years, of, of Jim Crow segregation. Look, we talk all the time to our clients, you can't even have an intelligent conversation about America being a democracy until at the very earliest, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. Okay, maybe we, we, we want to be real about it, uh, you know, 1964 Civil Rights Acts, right? That's where everybody's supposed to be equal under the law. But before that, what democracy? It was a glorified apartheid system, period. Mm -hmm. Part of what we're seeing today on this inauguration week and part of what we saw on January 6th was the result of lying to people right. about the American story. And somebody a few back in 1965 or whenever it was 63 made a comment about chickens right. coming home and he was shunned yeah. by an organization. Mm -hmm. When you tell a person a story for a long period of time, a, a, a fairy tale, and then you finally tell them the truth or show them the truth, you're going to get a response. By in a very <laughs> trite example, when you first told your kid that Santa Claus wasn't real or the Tooth Fairy wasn't real, you got a response, like, oh, shit, kind of response. And so when people are told a version of a story for so long, it's hard 
to, to accept the truth. And we were told that white people were inherently superior and that we were inherently inferior. That idea of inferiority and superiority was both passed down by generations of black people to, to you know, succeeding generations of black people and from white people to future generations. Well. So this notion of white superiority is something that's ingrained and this notion of black inferiority is something that's ingrained. Moreover, we'll go into certain communities where the idea of a black lawyer is just, you know, it's a unicorn. Right. I mean, you, you know, and that's just weird. So we don't, look, Jamal, Bill, we deal with that mentality all day long, but I know my history. I'm in a constant state of study of that history. So I quite frankly expect that. Look, the reality is there are not a lot of successful black agencies for a lot of reasons. And so I know most of the people against whom we're competing are either black agents working for white agencies or white, ag white agents working for white agencies. And then this 100% owned and operated black agency comes in and says, I can do everything that my counterparts say they can do, but do it better. And to boot, I know your story. I share your story. Right. So on those valleys, I can identify with you and why we're in that valley and thus help you emerge from it because I share your story. Your beginning is my beginning. So not only can I counsel you intellectually, professionally on the business of the stuff, I can help counsel you emotionally, socially on some of the things that are not in that contract, right? Even with that, folks looking at me with a jaundiced eye. Yeah, that right. should sound good. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right. Well, some may right, because I remember last right. year, you kind of remind me of Uncle Jimmy. Uncle Jimmy got a lot of talk, <laughs> yes. but Uncle Jimmy ain't never did shit before. Now, right. fuck that, I'm going to go side with white dude. And so right. we get that all the time. But I'll say this in closing <laughs> on this topic. We don't lament that fact, man. I have no complaints about this thing. I'm going to tell you why. For the past 20 years, I've signed the likes of, again, Antoine Bethay, Matt Forte, Maurice Jones-Drew, Justin Durant, Kendall Langford, Don Carey, Stefan Diggs, Tyrod, you name D Ford, you name it. We get elite level players and quality, quality young men who are looking for a certain kind of representation. That admittedly is not for everybody. Mm, See, right. I'm not the dude that can tell you to walk on water when you when you can't. I'm the dude that's gonna tell you the truth when everybody else right. tells you to walk on water. And most folks, you know what they say about the truth? What they say about the truth, Jamal? The truth hurts. what? Hurts. That shit hurts. hurts. So most people trying to avoid it. The sports and entertainment group, that's all you get all day long. Here's right. the other thing about us. You a grown man, there are no excuses. Excuses are reserved for children. You don't like your situation, change it. Right. Get in the gym, get on that field, and work. Don't talk to me about another man standing in the way of your success, bro. Get him out of the way. Again, we ain't the back rubbing group. We ain't the, it's gonna be okay. They're so unfair. They're treating you unfairly. Who promised you shit was gonna be fair? Right. Newsflash, it's not going to be fair. So what you going to do? So that's the message you get from us. And so certain type of players want that real, authentic, impassioned, caring kind of counseled, counsel that's coupled with very skilled lawyering. Right? Um, and some people don't. With a new year comes tons of new big games in sports. With big games, you need big stakes. Kansas City Stakes has the cuts you crave to celebrate the playoffs and the big game. 
Visit KansasCitySteaks.com slash game day and save up to $25 on combos perfect for game day. Plus get free shipping with code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout. Try out the snack pack combo featuring small plates with big flavor like mini beef, Wellington steak, burger sliders, uh, mac and cheese melts, shrimp wrapped in bacon. Mm. Every order is flash frozen, delivered directly to your home, satisfaction guaranteed, or your money back. Basically, every cut of steak imaginable, plus appetizers, desserts, barbecue, and so much more. Again, go to KansasCitySteaks.com slash game day and use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout for free shipping. Kansas City Steaks, big games, big taste. So, so, you're, so you're, you're okay with missing out on people, you know, missing out on people who aren't a good fit because you look All at- All day long, because you, you look at the average agent, they're telling people what they want to hear. So they are not okay with that. But no, so we walk away from God. Listen, man, we walk, you know this business. <laughs> we don't give bribes for people to be our clients. We ain't got a bag to give you. I'm not giving right. you no kind of bag. I'm going to give you a bag of good advice so you don't end up like the 80% of players who end up broke. That's the bag I'm going to give you, okay? So I'm not bribing. I didn't have to pay Le'Veon to be my client. I didn't have to pay Stefan or D Ford or whomever it may be to be my client. They want real advice, understanding that 8 out of 10 NFL players end up with nothing. And they don't want, and all these players, with all that false bravado and their quiet moments, they know more people who have gone to the NFL to come home broke than they do people coming from their communities that transformed their families financially for generations to come. And in their quiet moments, bravado aside, they hope to God that they don't end up like the majority of cats they know that come from their hood, that come back with just stories, but no money. And so we have something that you need. And so in that first five minutes of an interview, Hey, we've shut interviews down within the first 15 minutes. Hey, listen, man, we appreciate you all. You all are great people. It's probably not going to be a good fit. So we're just mm. going to shut it down right now. I tell dudes all they talk, all along, all, uh, all day long, Jamal Bill, listen, if you simply see yourself as an athlete, football player, basketball player, boxer, whatever it is, if you simply see yourself as a football player, we're not the right shot for you. If you see football as a bridge to an even greater end, don't get me wrong, this does not speak to your love for the sport. you got to love it. To run your head into other people who are trying to run their head into you, there better be some love there, right? So you got to love it, but you understand that football does not define you. If I would have, if, if Antoine Bethea would have never played a down in the NFL, he would have been successful in something. If Maurice Jones-Drew never played a down, he would have been successful in something, as he's showing now as a broadcaster. And so we sign players who understand that they are not defined by this sport, that they're going to exploit and utilize and maximize this sport to get as much money as possible, that they're going to leverage their celebrity, their popularity to forge greater opportunity down the road when they retire. But most importantly, they're going to do everything in their power to improve the lives of their, their household and their families. They understand that they have an obligation. We remind them of that obligation. Your book reminds them of that obligation. Mm -hmm. When they come to our office, it's like walking into a black sports museum because you see Tommy Smith there, you see that, everything, you see our hit, all them stories you talk about where you got black cyclists on our wall, every, I mean, literally, you walk in our office, it's a museum of African-American sports history. It, yeah, you see a couple SB trophies and some Super Bowl stuff, current day stuff, but it's mostly, you can't walk into our offices in Georgetown and DC and not be inspired to do more than simply score a touchdown. Mm. And so that's the message we instill. And I know that's a message reserved 
for a certain family, for a certain kind of player. So we're okay, yes, Jamal, walking away from those who don't want that kind of representation. Yeah. I wonder, uh, and I know we, we're going to let you go, or you're going to let us go, but, uh, but um, and this is something, I, I've been a critic of, of, um, of Demora Smith. Um, not, you're trying to get I mean, me in trouble on the last question. you trying to get no, me in I'm, trouble. I'm, listen, my brother, I'm saying this, I'm prefacing my whole question to let you know I'm going. So, because so you're okay. a smart guy, you can start formulating your basic <laughs> fucking answer now. So I was, I didn't see, I didn't just start with a question. I said, let me preface the shit now. I said, oh, here this motherfucker goes. <laughs> you know, but 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 you cannot. I was watching a uh, a documentary last night by Dr. King. Uh, it was a rare interview. He was on a rare interview with uh, I forgot the cat, but it's really very interesting. But part of it, they're having Malcolm and, and, and Dr. King, you know, thing. I mean, you know, whatever the personal relationship was, you know, Malcolm was, well, you know, Dr. King is, you know, maintain yeah. the status quo and blah, 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 and all that. So right. when I see DeMorris, who, and, and, I, and we've been on panels again, I think he's a great guy just in terms of a brother, you know, he'd sit there and talk, you know, but in terms of, uh, of, of everything we're talking about in terms of how do you mobilize a league when more than seventy percent of the players are black, you know that's a hell of a, a potential. Now I know Gene Upshaw would always say, "Well, yeah, but seventy percent are white, but thirty percent—I mean, seventy percent are black, but thirty percent are white." You know, that's how I rate Gene. Fine, but to me, whether you know, and, and I think, and again, you could pass on this, but I know that um, I think Demar sees himself as—I mean, this is labor. This is about labor. Yeah, it's about labor. So um, what do you think about, does there need to be another, another organization hmm. of black athletes, you know, uh, that's separate from the labor union? You know what I'm saying? Uh, does there need no, to I, be- No, I hear the point. I hear this. I certainly appreciate the sentiment. I'll say this directly with respect to Demore Smith. One, whoever is the executive director of uh, the NFL union or any sports union, complicated job. NFL union, one, you got 70% black, 30% non-black. And within that 70%, you got multiple opinions and personalities and the like. And you got to, you know, kind of organize and, and, and round up all those things to get a certain thing done. Um, it's a challenge. I do believe that people bring, you know, their philosophies, their life philosophies to work every day. And those things shape how you do your job. Um, we are in a business as agents servicing people, the uh, individuals, not entities. Uh, the union is in a similar business, but they don't have, they, they have a, a, a collective body that they serve as opposed to individuals that they serve. And that certainly is challenging. I think the real question that the NFL has to ask itself, the NFLPA has to ask itself, among others, is, how do we help continue to position our players to leverage their power right. while they have it? Right. No matter what, power no matter temporary. what causes you. Right. So how do we get this? So part of what we do is not being reactionary. When a player like Colin takes a stance, and that stance is a legitimate stance for the legitimate reasons, you don't test the waters to see if it's okay to support them. Right. You support them. Right. And you mobilize others to do the same, right? When, when, when Colin took his stance, all my clients called me and said, should I, should I take a knee? Should I say, listen, man, this is your career. Let me, let me explain this. 
if you do whatever you do. So here's the thing people don't realize. We do an annual retreat, Bill, right? And so we were on the retreat. The, the topic of that retreat, we do retreat right before preseason or right before training camp, bring all the clients in. And the topic of that retreat, the, 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 the theme of it was I'm my brother's keeper. And we were talking about how we can use our platform to, for social good. Colin calls one of my, I'm going to just put it out there. Colin text messages Antoine Bethea. Wow. Antoine shows me the phone and Colin is proposing taking the knee. This is in July of that year. Oh, before you did I said, it. And then he's like, Twan, Twan is like, what y'all think? And then they all looked at me and I'm like, well, that's heavy. I said, <laughs> you do it now. It's, I mean, you're going to get the attention you want. But with that attention is going to come some consequences. And you got to ask yourself, are you ready for those consequences? I'm never going to tell a player what to do, even so some, sometimes I'm like, fuck it, don't show up. I, want, I get that fit, <laughs> but I'm never going to advise the player this is his life, you know, his career. Um, and so I'm just going to give objective counsel as best I can. So with respect to the union, I would love to see NFL players continue to be put, put in positions uh, to, to accentuate the power while they have it because that power is temporal, it's temporary, it's limited. That, shot, that, that sun is going to shine bright on those elite players, and then it's going to set on those elite players, and the new crop will come in. Um, I do think, with respect to your proposal about a separate organization, I don't know that we need to necessarily organize in the full four-wall sense of an organization, Bill, but I do think, as always, like-minded people need to come together and not wait for anyone's approval and build and do the things necessary to affect the change that they desire. And when you couple those like-minded people with hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah, that change is going to come relatively quick because mm -hmm. of that money. We ain't gotta ask nobody for permission. These young men are essentially individual financial institutions, man. And you put a couple, three, four, five of those individuals together with a single purpose, oh, you gonna see a great deal of change happening at a rapid pace. And yeah. I, think, uh, I think those conversations are happening. I think much of what we see in the NFL's response to social justice is a result of players taking certain action, right? right? Now, whether that, stuff that the league is doing and their relationship with Jay-Z, whether it's all perfunctory and show. I mean, that's a debate for another day, but it's certainly the result of elite players saying, we ain't taking this shit no more. Right. right. And so yeah. players just need to be reminded. I think people, black people, because of our unique history, need to be reminded periodically that we do have some influence, that we do have as my professor used to say, potential for power. But when that, and then when the time comes for you to exert it, you better exert it. Cause again, you don't know how long you gonna have that thing. Right. As far as the 70, 30, we live in a democracy. What's the core tenet of a democracy? Majority rules. Democracies work when you're in a majority. They, everybody love a democracy, you in that majority population. Ain't always roses and balloons when you're in a minority population. And so yeah, 70, 30, yeah, we live in a democracy. Right, and, and but you make, that. well, you make a great point that with even within that seventy percent, there's yeah, it's tough. I, yeah, you know, the locker room is a very complex yes. place. You know, and, um, that, and that's a product of that's a product of education, and, I, and not to bring it home. And I know, you know, for the viewers, they don't know me, but this is not to stroke your ego. But that's that's why your book is so important. You can't simply go to work every day with the hopes of earning a big dollar contract, I promise you, without that sense of purpose, without that historical context, you will squander that wealth. You will blow it. I don't care how big the numbers are, right? When you 
I mean, it's way off topic, Bill, and I know we over time. But can you imagine kids, our kids, taking for granted education when they've internalized, when they have internalized the history of education in the black community in America? Right. How we there was a time where our tongues would be removed if we were caught reading. There were people who literally died so you could go get an education. But we gloss over that, right? It makes us feel sad when we talk about that. So we don't teach our children about that very real reality that my parents had to fight to go to certain schools. But if you ingrain that into these young people, oh, I'm not missing class, right? I, people tell me all the time, you vote, why you, you know, you vote, why you vote? You know, you ain't really used to let try. Look, man, I vote for two reasons. First of all, I vote for my ancestors. Right. I know when I pass my presidential vote, now I live in an area where it doesn't really matter if I vote right now, most Democratic area, no matter who I vote for president, likely the Democratic nominee is going to get the vote because it's largely a Democratic area. But I still exercise my constitutional right, first and foremost, because my ancestors died to ensure I have it, and I'm not going to let their lives be in vain. But more important, in addition to that, I vote because, as we saw in this the past election, one vote can have a significant outcome, even in a presidential race. Right. So... Again, it's it's we can't move without truly understanding how we got where we are. And that's that's the beauty about your book, man, is that in a very matter of fact, point to point, straight line, I don't want to say it's an easy read because our history is not easy, but it's a it's a it's a read that you can get through even if you're not a voracious, you know, if you're not a person who's always reading. And it's a read that's full of historical data, but it's entertaining. Right, so you don't yeah. feel like somebody lecturing you as you're reading the book. And I'm I'm a nerd. I like the data. I like the dates. I like to be able to refer to it at you know tea parties to make me sound smart and all that stuff. But I, I also like the fact the way you wrote it, it was it was graphic. You could see the stuff. I could see the jockeys. I could see the cyclists. I could see the battles in Yankee Stadium with Gramlin and Morgan and all. And so yeah, man. If if you know this shouldn't be a thing. Truth be told. This shouldn't be a thing. You're talking about 70, 30. This shouldn't be a thing that I'm giving my clients. This should be a thing the union is giving right, right. these players. Right. This is right. this is their this is this should be a thing every professional sports union where there's a significant black player population should be giving their players. They have to understand how they Yeah, you know the phrase, man. We stand on our shoulders of those who've come before us. And if you don't appreciate that reality then you're likely to squander whatever wins you get. It's only when you know the road that people travel to get you in a position you're in that you tend to, you know, you tend to, to treat that thing with a little bit more, you know, uh, fragility and, and, and tend to appreciate it a little bit more. So, yeah, your book is a beast, man. I appreciate yeah. you for that. How, hey, how's, how's, that how's that for a plug, Bill? Well, yeah. No, I'll just try. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 answer my, I guess, I guess, again, again, I guess been uh, the great uh, Adisa Bakari. Uh, did you did you come? Um, tell me about Adisa Bakari. Adisa, did you go into Delaware? I mean, you always been Adisa Bakari, or did you change in, in spirit? In spirit, no. But like most American-born blacks, I was given a European name um, because that's our slave history. Uh, blame it on Delaware State. I met mm. a couple professors at Dell State who forced me to do some real study on the black experience, not just in America but throughout the, the globe. And my wife and I went, met my wife freshman year of college. She ran track. I played football, only two populations on campus. Fortunately, she thought I was cute. And so we've been <laughs> together ever since. And by the time we reached our senior year, I just made, we together made the decision that that chain had to be broken, that I was not going to continue to pass a slave name on to my children. 
Mm. That's period. So we 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 like to think, we like to say we corrected our names. Right. Um, and so our names reflect our African ancestry. So here's the funny thing. People will hear what I just said and think, oh my God, that's controversial or, or that's militant. <laughs> I ain't never met an Asian Jamal before. In fact, <laughs> if, a, if I saw an Asian person say, what's up, bro? My name's Jamal. So I'll be looking, what? what? <laughs> right? If someone pointed to a chair and said, hand me that desk, you would look confused. Our names... No disrespect, but our names are, were given to us by the people who held us as property, right? Our names came along with a philosophy centered around inferiority. And we pass that down through naming. We pass it down to our children. And it's only when we decide we're going to cut the cord, period. Look. It ain't, I'm not, I'm not no romanticizing Africa. There's a lot of fucked up shit that happened there and now in Africa. And we got a lot of jacked up stuff in our culture that we need to fix globally and locally. But I do know this. It's only when we truly get to know ourselves and accept who we are, good and bad, that we can really start to right the wrongs of our past. And part of that, in my, in my opinion, part of that for my family was making sure my children didn't wait till they were 20 years old to learn a little something about their culture and their heritage. And so, yeah, my children <laughs> don't have that story. Hmm. My, my last conversation with uh, Muhammad Ali was at the um, Sydney Olympics. And uh, I was, you know, there was a suite. And so I was kind of invited to the suite. And there was Ali. And as many people I know, I'm still, you know, you don't know what the fuck to say, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I mean, certain people, you you know it's like you don't know no matter who you spoke or whatever it's like oh I don't know what the fuck to say just let me please let me be like with Mandela anyway so yep. I went over to find I went over to and I said something like uh, you know uh, I think it's something like hi Ali uh, uh, somehow he, then he said, he said what's your name I said my name is Bill Rose no 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 what's your name. And I just said, just fuck me up. Yes. He yes. just said, no. The way he said, no, what's your name? <laughs> you know, to get, and then I got joked, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny. When I, when I corrected my name, I was most concerned about my grandmother. Uh, my grand, I was named after my grandfather. And, uh, and my grandmother was the matriarch of the family. She, she, you know, she queen bee, everybody. You know, she was the head of the household. My grandfather had a stroke when I was 12, which rendered him with, kind of Alzheimer's effects uh, type, type, you know, effects. And so in any event, I, w I just needed to know that she understood why I was doing it. And so to your question, I went into college, a kid growing up in the inner city of DC with not a lot of money, but a lot of love in the eighties. Uh, and let's just say I, my behavior was typical for a teenager in Washington, DC in the eighties. And the eighties weren't that, that wasn't a good decade for DC inner city. Right. Uh, football saved my life. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I'm not ashamed to say for the first 18, 19 years of my life, I was working hard as shit to destroy it. Mm. Um, and so when I when I met these people at Delaware State, these professors who helped to make the lessons my grandmother was instilling in my brother and me to help those lessons a little bit more clear. And I and, and that kind of reached the point of crescendo of me saying, no, I want to change my name. And I went home. Yeah, my aunts and cousins, they were like, well, boy, you named after grandpa. Well, 
but my grandmother saw this new version of her grandchild mm. and saw that it wasn't a fad because it's been something that was going on for years. And, and I would come home and started, I'll never forget, but I came home with a couple 10 books and I wanted to share with my brother. I got to read this. And read. I ran upstairs one time to grab a book out of my, my bedroom to come back down. All my friends had left the house. They were like a decent. <laughs> <my pastor. laughs> you know, I'm going to God crazy, man. And so, and so it's funny because the, the, the funny thing is, you talk about Ali, this is how crazy our community is. So this picture here, you can't make it out, but you see that tall man right there? Oh, oh wow, Malcolm. Yeah, though that's my uncle and my aunt. Oh, wow. Malcolm, wow. Malcolm, and this is, they lived wow. three blocks from me. We used to get calls as kids, come down to Aunt Jocelyn's house, the champ is here, the champ is here. Oh, wow. They wow. all, when, when my uncle Evelyn died, I was a freshman at Delaware State, the minister played the violin at his funeral. They stayed, Malcolm stayed with them when he came to town. You know when I learned these stories, Bill? When I graduate Delaware State, wow. I was sitting. There's an African proverb that says, "When the when an elder dies, a library burns." Wow. And there's no more no, no more poignant than this story. I was literally sitting blocks away from all this information, and I was running away from. It. We didn't want to go over Aunt Jocelyn's house. We didn't want to go over Uncle Evelyn's house. You know why? They didn't have TVs. <laughs> right, right, right. They when I was 12 years old, Uncle Evelyn, <laughs> Uncle Evelyn came to me and said. My, my born name was Clint, Clinton. I was named after my grandfather. And he said, little Clint, what you gonna be when you grow up? You might be surprised by this, but I was always the talkative one. <laughs> and so my grandmother, <laughs> since, my grandmother, since I can remember, was like, boy, you gonna be a lawyer. <laughs> so I'm 12 years old, standing in a room in my grandmother's house, and Uncle Evelyn was over, and he said, what you gonna be, little Clint, when you grow up? I said, I'm gonna be a lawyer. He said, name one black lawyer. Mm. I, I didn't even have the presence of mind to say Thurgood Marshall, because of course I knew who he was, but he was a Supreme right. Court justice. I couldn't connect the dot. Of course he's a lawyer, he's a Supreme Court justice. But right. I said, I, I don't know. And he said, you want to be something that you know nothing about and nobody that looks like you, but you want to be that thing, huh? And I had no idea. I was confounded. Uh, I, I go to Dell State. I really start to immerse in the study of myself. I can't wait to come home to go over Aunt Jocelyn's and Uncle Evelyn's home, house to show them how much I've matured and evolved as a young man. And my uncle even passed <laughs> that February going to this second year. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, man, this stuff is, is, I don't know how we got to talking about this, but this stuff is much bigger than sports. Right. Uh, you can appreciate why I celebrate your book so much because your book is not about, it's, it's, while it's entitled $40 million slaves, it ain't about the bag. It ain't about the 40 million as much as it's about not being that slave. Well, and yeah, understanding yeah understanding your history and the role that you can play if you use this opportunity in a certain way. And so we try to educate our players to do just that. We're fortunate, Jamal, to your earlier question, to sign families who want that type of representation for their children. And uh, despite the hardships that black agents complain about, bruh, I don't have no complaints. I know, I, 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 look, we got a long way to go. Slavery was real. It wasn't an after-school Disney special. They did a number on our minds, okay? And so I get that, but we still find the right people for us every year who want the type of representation that we afford to, to allow us to help them leverage their athletic careers for greater opportunity in life after sports, who become family like Tyrod or Antoine or Reese or Matt. And uh, it just fills the heart to know that we're doing it a certain kind of way. But it's fine. We don't get a lot of love publicly, you know. But my clients know what they get from us. And like you said earlier, Bill, folks may not know us, but they know our clients. 
right. and they know our clients, you know, they, they, they get top deals and they speak a certain kind of way when their mouth or when they open that mouth. They have a certain sense of purpose about them. And, I, and again, thank you to you, Bill, for helping in that regard by way of that book. Well, now you got to tell me, uh, again, our guest has been uh, the great super, I'll call you super agent. <laughs> I got a cape and everything. The true that, super you agent. Know what? No, seriously, but you got to, I'm, I'm listening, like I said, I'm, I listen to a lot of radio. I listen to a lot of media. And that's what these cats do all the time. You know, uh, my white brothers and sisters constantly, you know, uh, jerking each other off. You know, they're constantly, mm -hmm. you know, they're constantly throwing it. Today, you had this cat, Brian T. Smith from the Houston Insider. Mm. And I'm listening to his analysis of Watson. And it's the same way as I, I've been a big proponent of putting Kurt Flood in the Hall of Fame. I mean, mm. Kurt Flood is heroic. Yes. I was just talking to his widow last night. I mean, as, as often as I could write about him, I'll write. Yeah. I mean, the current economic structure that exists is because yeah. of Kurt Flood. Oh, man, anyway. you could, yeah, you know, I mean, you could, you could yeah. talk about Jackie Robinson, all that. If it wasn't for Jackie, more black people. I'm mean, Okay, fine. I mean, you can argue the point. That's true. If it weren't for but, Flood, the money that all players make would be different. Well, there's a direct line. See, that what my point was, there's a direct line from Kirk Flood to every single free agent, white, black, or indifferent in That's all it. sports. I mean, That's if it. he wasn't the first cat that stood out and said, man, ain't no, because all the agents, I mean, the, the, the owners have been saying, don't come outside this room because there's a line outside the room. And everybody for years, I ain't going to curse him. Man, fuck that. Ain't no fucking lying out there. And if it is, I'm gonna fight him. That's you right. Know? Hey, but and you, Bill, you know what that's one. about, Bill. You know what that's right. about. You will be yeah. celebrating a guy. You will be exalting right. a guy who turned over the economic apple cart for professional sports, right. where owners were winning forever. You played right. for me for as long as I wanted, for as much as I wanted to pay you. Right. And I shut up and like it until right. Kirk Flood came. Right. Right. So you would be exalting this guy, making this guy of an example of what is exemplary. Right. Shit, you might inspire one of these young boys to stand on his shoulders to continue to, we might end up with right. somebody right. trying to get a 100% guaranteed NFL contract. The nerve uh, of that uh -oh, idea. Uh -oh. <laughs> the nerve of that idea. Uh -oh. he hurt Flood in that closet. Don't tell that story. That's what, that's what that's about. Well, we got to have this conversation. We, we have to do part two. No and in question. fact, Bakari, we, uh, we have to do uh, Part two via Zoom. People have to see this. I mean, sure. people, our kids, our kids see them. I mean, they'll read because you make them read. They'll, they'll read the mm -hmm. book. And by the way, I was doing an audio. Um, I, I did the audio version of the book. Yeah, that's was, good. The, which was the first time I'd actually, to be honest, read the book cover to cover. Mm. That's the first time I really read cover to cover because, you know, I'm kind of like, okay, I did it. I spent yep. nine years. All right. And then Get it away from come back. <laughs> But, but yeah, then I, yeah. when I read it, I read it, and I said, wow. And just as a writer, I'm reading it, and I'm thinking, why did you write? You made write some long-ass paragraphs, man. Why did you? <laughs> Damn. You know, I'm like holding my breath and shit. <laughs> correct these shits. Wait, can I correct this? Yeah. But, but listen, man, we have to uh, do this again. Uh, it would be great cool. to have a, a conversation uh, like this, because I think these kind of conversations uh, maybe do them on HBCU campuses. Maybe go to that'd be awesome, West State. Man. Come to Morgan. That'd be awesome. That'd be um, awesome. You know, and I've just been reconnecting with a lot of my, um, you know, you mentioned how Delaware State saved your life. Man, Morgan, I don't know if it saved my life, but it certainly, man, changed my life uh, in a whole new 
trajectory, man. There were cats. When I got to Morgan, they had lost the game in three years. Mm. And, and I came from a high school in Chicago. We only won two games every year. And, mm. and the way we say, there's a mentality there. Yeah, you get used to this. There's a mentality. And I yeah. go into this place, man. There are cats there who didn't know what they never lost a game mm. in their life. And the English department had cats like Nick had had some of the top English professors recognizing the country. You mm. know, it was, and there, was this, there was this expectation of success that's unique right. to HBCUs. Right. That's right. another conversation. It is but, indeed. But but it's a thing that I think that we and I, I listen. I talk to the fellows, and unlike me, a lot of the fellows, young kids, mm -hmm. and they went to these schools not because they had. They went to these schools because they wanted to go. Yeah. They they wanted. Yeah. They, they needed a break. Yeah. You know, they needed yeah. a break. So I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so we at some point we'll have another conversation. But man, I so appreciate you. Yeah. Appreciate uh, what you've done. Um, appreciate the work you've done with your clients people we know people we don't know because uh, it's like a ripple on a pond so man uh no i appreciate it thanks for having me look man I, again been following your career for a long time all look i've been a fan for for a, a very long time and again that book kind of you know capsulized that anytime y'all need anything from me just reach out because uh need another book. Yeah, you know you, i mean <laughs> I need folks quite frankly book. <laughs> hey, the, the funny thing is, after this interview, everybody gonna know my story. <laughs> I probably said too much of this shit, but but uh, y'all know what you know what motivates you know what motivates our shop and why we do what we do. So if there's anything uh, we can you know be of assistance or be a part of, just feel free to reach out. We're there. Tell tell Tyrod to talk to me. I, I drove all the way from L.A. No, from fucking San Francisco to L.A. because I wanted to talk to him. Yeah, and he didn't know he didn't know me from Adam's house cat. So I drove all the way down. That I went to the train. Do what you're supposed to do as a reporter. Right. My watch was a man. I'll crawl there, you know. And we, you know, but he didn't know who I was, so he mm -hmm. kind of sent me to the PR guy. Wow, well, you know, he's trying to keep the focus on the gas. Like, yeah. All you had to do was mention your book and be like, <laughs> you know, your agent gave you that book. He was like, oh, you the dude that wrote Forty Million Dollar Slave? He was like, yeah, okay, yeah. Trust me, my dudes know who you are, if not by name, they know you by that book. Yeah. Right before you leave, just let us know what you're up to now, Disa, in terms of. You know, what you got going on is COVID. It's crazy yeah. times right now. How is that affecting you? Um, is it going to be a combine this year? What, what's, 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 yeah, you yeah, got yeah. Going no, on? I mean, real quickly, it affected certainly our recruiting. Um, my partner and I, you know, we're in that, that 50 decades, so we ain't get on no planes this year. But our young agents in the office, hell, they're in their 20s. They can get that shit and get over. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm joking. I'm joking. This shit is serious. It's, I trust the science. But uh, so we didn't travel as much. We still got a real good class. A um, couple, three running backs that are going to be beasts. We got some corners from Oklahoma and Kentucky that are going to be very good. A receiver from Tennessee. So we got a really good rookie class we're excited about. Um, the combine, uh, it's certainly going to be a different landscape, Jamal, Bill. But truthfully, I'm not overly exercised about it not being one this year in its traditional form because truthfully, in my opinion, it's going to force NFL teams to do what they should be doing anyway, and that's making draft decisions based on tape, right. how good you are on tape, and not right. get excited about how fast you look in shorts. Right. Um, and so it's going to force, I think, NFL teams to do their real scouting and focus on the football player and not the, quote, athlete. Um, so I'm fine with that. Uh, so we're getting ready for that. And obviously uh, we launched the basketball division a couple years ago, uh, really in earnest for the first time this year. We hope, you know, COVID restrictions travel-wise, but we, we're excited about doing in the NBA uh, what we've done in the NFL. 
uh, both economically and socially vis-a-vis -vis our clients. So um, for us, man, we're just continuing to, to try to reinvent ourselves every year, make sure we're still pushing the envelope a little bit, both economically and socially, making sure that our message is still one that resonates with these young players. I'm not wearing skinny jeans and nothing like that, but I got young players, who, young agents who could wear the skinny jeans that identified and all that. <laughs> but we, we still got to make sure we got a story to tell that resonates with these families. And I think that's, uh, and that's being done. So we're excited. We're excited about what the future holds, uh, both within the, uh, the realm of professional sports, but we're also excited about uh, where the nation is going given the transition that we're seeing this week. Look, 20, uh, the last four years, I'll say this, the last four years have certainly been challenging and heart-wrenching for many at times because of who was in that, that, that White House on 16th and Pennsylvania Avenue. But I tell you this, it also exposed a lot of things that we, in our community, knew existed. Right. Right. Exactly. You're like, what y'all talking about? This is amazing to see, you know, <laughs> right. to see Capitol Police be involved. Yeah, right. right? To see right. cops no shit. opening. <laughs> no, that's, we've been telling y'all that shit for years that these brothers <laughs> are going. So it right. exposed a lot of things that are wrong with the system, with our country, and hopefully for some, some well-intentioned, well-meaning people in this new administration can really work to, for once and for all, try to put these things to bed to write this thing, this ship, to make America for all and not a bifurcated or trifurcated America, depending on what you look like and what your complexion is. Uh, so we're excited about the future, both uh, professionally or with regard to sports and just you know with regard to the country itself. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the current landscape for us at the Sports Entertainment Group. Adis Bakari, it's been wonderful, man. Thank you so much. And uh, Thank you, guys. We gotta Thank do you. part two somewhere. Make sure that uh, if you got my number, text me your information. I will. Tomorrow. And uh, man, be strong, brother. All I can say is enjoy Sunday, but you win either way. You already. Hey, That's it. That's you it. win. <laughs> hey, look, I tell GMs this on last note. I tell GMs this every year to come. I said, look, you better sign one of my clients because I've been on the Super Bowl sideline for the past 20 years. I've had a guy <laughs> in that game. Yeah. I ain't saying it's me, but. You might want to think about retaining one of my clients. No, I'm hey, I appreciate you both. Hey, Bill, I'll shoot you a text now. And uh, Jamal, thanks again for setting this up. And uh, just well, y'all be in touch, man. You all stay safe. All right. All right. All right. Take care. Take care appreciate now. Bye-bye. Great. Adisa Bakari. Uh, yes. Great conversation, man. We could, yes. we could talk for another hour. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that was a good right. one. Just about my book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, he could, I mean, basically, you know, like he said, he uses, he uses the book as like, you know, messaging for, uh, for his organization. So, so listen, man, uh, Jamal, another great conversation. Once again, thanks for, uh, you know, everybody listening, uh, appreciate the support. Uh, keep following us on social media at bros pod on Twitter and Instagram and Bill Roden on sports on Facebook. Um, and you know, just keep, keep supporting. Uh, we keep, we'll keep putting out the good content. That's right. We know there's a core of you. Mm. Oh, yeah. <coughs> you are people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, Jamal. So, listen, um, see you next week. Everybody else out there, uh, enjoy the inauguration. I mean, I think there's something, um, even, you know, no matter, I think all fair minded people, all fair minded people, no matter who you voted for, fair minded people, I think of it as in athletics. You know, we've all know athletes who every time they lose it's because of the ref right, or right, because right, they were cheated right, right. right it's because something and every time they win 
is because they were great. Right. And after a while, anybody who knows an athlete, a young athlete that will pull them aside and say, listen, man, sometimes you fucking lose. You know, but right. you can't say every single time you lose, you can't say it's because they cheated. Right. You know, and it's like every time you win, it's all legitimate. That does not make sense. And I think a lot of fair minded people, you know, who, you know, voted the other way and they lost, they say, okay, well, you know, let's, that's where it goes. Let's move on. You right. know, and those are the people who I think should rejoice, you know, who, who are, you know, in, in the new day, you know, uh, new administration, new opportunity, you know, to continue to make this nation what it is. This is not a quote unquote white man's country. Right. You know, and for those of you who hold on to that shit, you know, your your ranks continue to shrink or even if they shrink, the numbers of people who don't believe in that grows and grows every single decade. Right. It grows and grows and grows and grows while your numbers basically stay the same. Right. <laughs> you know, figure right. that out figure out that math. You know. Right. So um and at least it yeah, was so, at least like like uh Adisa said, at least it was exposed. Um right. you know those those people and the actions were exposed. Uh like you said, nobody even in sports, nobody I don't care even if you root for the team, you don't want to see your star player complaining to the refs every play. You know, never, play. never taking any kind of accountability. Right. That's not that's, right. that's not attractive. We'll, we'll trade. We'll trade you to the Nets. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. We'll, we'll talk about that next week, right? We'll, we'll talk about your net, your Brooklyn Nets, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, uh, things have things have changed uh, in in the uh, in the Brooklyn Nets press conference zooms. Uh, many more people attending now. All of a sudden, now, are they in person or are they Zoom? There's Zoom, but you know, they're more now the Zoom is like a hundred people deep when it used to be forty deep. Really? Yeah. So you know it's they a were national. Small it's a, it's a, with Kyrie. And now they're more. Yeah, now with Harden there, now all of a sudden, you know, it's national. National news right now. Interesting. So do you have hope? Well, I don't wanna I don't wanna go down there in that rabbit hole, but just tease it for next week. Do you have hope for the for the next? Yeah, I, I have I have hope. Just, you know, talent. Talent wins. Um, they really, you know, that they're going to have so much offensive talent when, when you have KD and Harden, who are really top five offensive talents in the league, and then Kyrie is whatever top ten, top twenty. It's when really on them. Yes, yeah, it's, it's on them. If they if they can't get it done, they got to take responsibility because there there's so much talent. We know in basketball, talent wins. It's just about playing together. Period. All right. So we'll see. But anyway, listen, everybody, enjoy the inauguration. Uh, stay safe. Stay strong. And uh, God bless. See you next week.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.